In addition to MCAST, a subscription to eMedHome.com includes over 1,000 video lectures from the best EM conferences, with more added all the time. View on any device whenever and wherever you want. All this and so much more, including hundreds of CME credits each year for the low cost of only $99. eMedHome.com. For 20 years, the homepage of emergency medicine. Subscribe now. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the September issue of eMedHome's EMCAST. This is Amal Matu at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and welcome back. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind everybody about a few really great upcoming conferences. October 1st through October 3rd, we're going to be conducting our ninth annual The Crashing Patient Conference right on our campus, University of Maryland here in Baltimore. October 1st, there's going to be some pre-conference EKG workshops, a symposium focused on hot topics in emergency cardiology, and there's also going to be some cadaver labs focused on procedures and airway. October 3rd, there's going to be some post-conference echo workshops, but October 2nd is going to be our main conference lineup. Check out the website, www.thecrashingpatient.com. And also, if you're interested specifically in emergency cardiology, there's two really great conferences coming up, September 16th and 17th in Toronto, and also November 18th and 19th in Montreal. We're going to be having two-day emergency cardiology conferences. Probably about 60% is going to be focused on advanced EKG interpretation and the other 40% on general topics in emergency cardiology. You can check out that website at emcardio.com. All right, folks, well, on to this week's topics. We've once again got three great topics. We're going to kick things off with another lecture from our most recent emergency cardiology symposium that was here on our campus. This month, we're going to be featuring Dr. Samantha Wood, who's going to be talking about how to manage heart transplant patients in the emergency department when they present with emergencies. Sam is an EMIM critical care boarded physician who works up at Maine Medical Center. She's an outstanding speaker, and she's bursting onto the CME circuit. You're going to be hearing her name a lot more if you attend major conferences. And this is just a fantastic lecture that, honestly, I've never heard anyone give a great talk or any talks on this topic in particular, let alone such a really great talk that she's going to be sharing with all of us. Then we're going to talk about a recent article that was published in JAMA's Rational Clinical Exam Series. This is another one of those articles that talks about what are the factors that rule in something? What are the factors that rule out something? Specifically, the topic this month is cardiogenic syncope. What are the presenting history and exam features, lab features, EKG features that you should think about and look for when somebody shows up with syncope that rule in or rule out cardiogenic causes of syncope? It's very, very useful stuff. And then we're going to finish things up with a rant, essentially, on penicillin allergy is something that we all see all too often. Yeah, patients are allergic to penicillin, but they don't know what their allergy is, right? Or maybe it's just a little bit of a rash or maybe just some vomiting or diarrhea. Michael Bond, who's our residency director, has a particular interest in this topic, and he's going to talk about this topic based on another article that was published in the Emergency Medicine and Medical Literature and we're going to get a little more useful information about what to do when these patients show up saying that they're allergic to penicillin. So with that as an intro, let's go ahead and get started. Thank you, everybody, so much for inviting me back to Baltimore. It is really an honor to cap off this amazing morning of speakers on a whole smattering of amazing topics. 
I'm really excited to come and speak to you this morning about how to take care of a heart transplant patient in the emergency department. Now, I would not say that we as emergency providers are a particularly trusting bunch of people. We know never to trust a patient who comes in intoxicated because they're probably hiding an intracranial bleed. We know never to trust a neonate who's just a little bit off. They probably have sepsis or an intra-abdominal catastrophe or an undiagnosed cardiac congenital abnormality. We know never to trust the belly exam on an elderly patient who comes in with abdominal pain. Never to trust the radiology read of your films and always to look at them yourself. And we know from Dr. Matu in particular, <laughs> never ever to trust the white blood cell count if you're trying to rule in or rule out infection. So I don't think it'll come as any surprise to you that I'm gonna tell you today that you also can't trust the heart transplant patient when they come to the ED. We'll talk over the next 30 minutes or so about why that is and what to do about it. How do you take excellent care of these patients when they come to the emergency department by having a team approach, maintaining a broad differential diagnosis, and knowing a few specific scenarios where the management of these patients is unique? Let's start with why can't we trust them? A lot of the reason that these patients are so untrustworthy to us has to do with the innervation, or really lack thereof, of their transplanted heart. When the heart is transplanted, there's no longer any vagal innervation to the heart, there's no sympathetic innervation, and there's no sensory input that can be delivered from the myocardium to the patient's brain. This leads to a number of effects that matter to us in the emergency department, one of which is that these patients will not generally feel chest pain if they're having myocardial ischemia. Now, in some subset of patients over a period of time, or somewhere around 10 to 30% of them will re-innervate to some degree, so that is certainly possible. But the vast majority will not come in complaining of chest pain or pressure if they're having ischemia. Rather, they'll come in complaining of those symptoms that we think of as the associated symptoms of an acute coronary syndrome, nausea, diaphoresis, vomiting. Or they may come in with more simmering and prolonged symptoms of progressive heart failure, exercise intolerance, dyspnea on exertion. Maybe they've been having silent infarcts for a period of time and not realized it. And we'll go into a little more detail about evaluating coronary artery disease in the heart transplant patient. One of the other effects of this absence of innervation is that some of our go-to medications and treatments in the ED are going to work differently than you expect them. When there's no vagal innervation to the heart, a vagal maneuver isn't going to do anything. You can have that patient bear down as much as you want to try to break their SVT. It's just not going to work. Same is true for atropine. Patient coming in with an unstable bradyarrhythmia, atropine is of no help to you. Conversely, in the post-transplant state, patients become oversensitive to some certain medications, including one of our go-to meds, adenosine. And if you give a heart transplant patient your typical dose of adenosine because they're in SVT, you might find yourself dealing with a really prolonged block that you were not expecting. These patients are untrustworthy because their EKG is abnormal at baseline. Although I will say that it's not actually that abnormal. It's not typically so abnormal as to be uninterpretable in the setting of new arrhythmias or acute coronary syndromes. The most common EKG finding status post to heart transplant will be one, sinus tachycardia. Again, when you take away that vagal tone to the heart, the patient has a resting heart rate typically in about the 90 to 110 range. That's normal for them. The second common finding you'll see is axis deviation. This was classically thought to be predominantly right axis deviation, 
although the recent kind of looks at EKGs postoperatively show that it can be in either direction. And that simply has to do with the fact that the heart may be rotated in the thorax when the graft is placed in the chest. The third common finding that you'll see is varying degrees of right bundle branch block. Now, oftentimes, patients will come out of the operating room with the right bundle branch block, which is new, and this is thought to be due to maybe some ischemic injury or some thermal injury related to the operation. But they also are likely to develop progressive right bundle branch block morphology over time. And this is because these patients get a ton of biopsies. They get endomyocardial biopsies for surveillance every week in the first month and extremely frequently after that. Every time they go in to do a biopsy, that's taken from the RV septum. And so over time, there can be this kind of chipping away at the RV conduction system, and you see progressively increasing right bundle branch block. You may hear uh, uh, kind of one of the most interesting but, but inc increasingly rare findings on the post-op EKG for these patients is dual P waves. So if you meet a patient who had their tra heart transplant many, many years ago, they may have had what's called a biatrial technique, where they retained some of their own atrium, and that was anastomosed with the donor atrium. And thus, they can have two different sinus node uh, sources, and you can actually see two different P waves on their EKG. This is going to be less and less frequent that you'll see that EKG finding because the research has shown that a bicaval technique helps patients do better. And so instead of anastomosing at the atria, we're now anastomosing at the inferior and superior vena cava. And so that patient only has one atria. It's the donor atria, and they only have one P wave. So again, the EKG will be abnormal, but really, typically, it shouldn't be so abnormal that we can't use it to interpret what might be going on with the patient. As you guys all know from taking care of patients with immunosuppression of many kinds, we also can't trust these patients because if they come in with an infection, they might not have a fever. And if they come in with a fever, that could represent rejection rather than infection. Just can't trust them. So now that we've talked a little bit about why we can't trust these patients, let's meet one of these untrustworthy folks so we can start thinking about how we would approach this patient in the emergency department. This patient is a 41-year-old woman she had a history of peripartum cardiomyopathy, and she underwent a heart transplant six weeks prior, or six months, sorry, six years prior, long time before this uh, ED presentation. She'd actually done really well status post her heart transplant. But she came to the ED with this kind of simmering, subacute course of a few weeks of low-grade fevers, exercise intolerance, not feeling well, no chest pain, although as we know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. She had a heart rate and blood pressure, which were baseline for her, but she was hypoxic, more so than her baseline. And she had wheezes and ronchi on her physical exam. She had a chest x-ray, and she had an EKG done, which was essentially similar to her longstanding EKG abnormalities that she'd had since her transplant. So how are we going to approach this patient knowing that there are a number of diagnostic challenges to taking care of her? Well, the first thing, very similar to many of the other talks we've heard today, this is not a patient in whom you go it alone. Every single one of these heart transplant patients has an entire team of people standing behind them, and that team wants to know if the patient comes to the ED, even if they come in with a splinter or a stub toe. It's also important in terms of alerting the transplant team to know what your local resources are and whether they want to be notified as well. So, for example, at my hospital, we do not perform heart transplants, but we take care of a lot of people in the state of Maine who've gotten their heart transplant down in Boston. So when one of those patients comes to my ED, I know that their Boston team wants to know they're there, 
And I know that my heart transplant cardiologists at Maine Medical Center also want to know that they're there. And they want to know right away, and they want to know no matter how trivial the complaint may seem. So phone a friend, don't go it alone. The second thing I want to tell you about taking care of these patients is that I think that for almost anything that they come to your door for, perhaps aside from the very most trivial and most focal of complaints, no matter what they're showing up with, we should ask, is this infection, is it rejection, and is it vasculopathy? Because the overlap in the symptoms that these conditions will present with is so great, and because these are the three most critical and most common dangerous diagnoses that these patients will come to see you for. So let's start with infection. You guys are probably fairly familiar with this because you take care of patients who are immunocompromised for many, for many different reasons. For a heart transplant patient, just like with any organ transplant patient, the bottom line is they can get any bug at any time. We can break it down a little bit by the time frame in which they're coming to see you. Now, you're pretty unlikely to meet this patient in the first 30 days after their transplant. They're usually in the hospital for much of that time. The transplant team has a very close watch on them. But if they do happen to come see you, this is the time frame when they're at risk for infections that come with the graft, latent infections that the patient may have that reoccur when they're started on immunosuppression, and those infections you would think of as hospital-related, MRSA, C. diff, maybe catheter-related infections, et cetera. The one to six month time frame is when patients are most at risk for opportunistic infections. This is because their uh, anti-rejection regimen is at its maximum in this time period. So without giving an exhaustive list, excuse me, of all the opportunistic infections, that's the category of infection that you want to think about in this time frame. The other critical piece of information to obtain about patients, really at any point in their course, but especially in this time frame, is a medication history. The patient who gets a heart transplant will typically start out on a calcineurin inhibitor, an antimetabolite, and steroids. And the goal is to get them tapered off the steroids and then tapered down on the other medications as soon as possible, because with the steroid in particular comes a higher rate of complications. So you want to know in this time frame, are they still on their steroids? Because that might make you even more concerned for opportunistic infections. Patients will also be on varying uh, prophylactic regimens. Typically, they'll be on Bactrim to prophylax against pneumocystis, usually for about a year. And then depending on the CMV status of the donor and the patient, they may or may not be on gancyclovir to prophylax against CMV. We'll talk a little bit more about CMV in a couple of slides because I think it's a thing we don't necessarily think about automatically, and it's a huge cause of infection in these post-transplant patients. Finally, when you get beyond that six-month mark or when you get to those patients who have had their immunosuppressive regimen kind of decreased a little bit, now they're at risk for anything anybody else is at. And although they could still be at risk of an opportunistic infection, especially if their uh, anti-rejection regimen is too high, if they're super therapeutic, in general, they're going to get the same infections that everybody else gets. When you look at the causes of infection in the heart transplant patient over the entire course of their lives after their transplant, three of the four most common infections are just the same things that the rest of us are exposed to, the same things that your non-transplant patients get. They'll get skin and soft tissue infections, urinary tract infections, and pulmonary infections. CMV is a little bit of a special case, and I will admit, before I did this talk, I'm not used to thinking about this up front in the emergency department. But CMV is going to be the third most common infection 
that a heart transplant patient will get in their entire post-transplant course. The thing to remember about me when you want to consider CMV is that it's fever plus an itis. Most commonly, fever plus pneumonitis or fever plus enteritis. But it can cause hepatitis, myocarditis, pancreatitis. Fever plus an itis in a patient who's not on prophylaxis should make you consider CMV infection. It's very common in these patients. You want to test for it with a serum PCR and then consider treatment with IV gancyclovir. Of course, all of this will be in conjunction with your cardiology and transplant colleagues. So the bottom line for the heart transplant patient and concern for infection, be aggressive in seeking an infection. Remember that they may not present with a fever. If you're going to empirically antibiose these patients, you should go broad spectrum right up front because they are at risk for some unusual pathogens. I didn't want to go into details about what drug interactions are present because nobody would remember it, but bottom line, pull up your online resource, talk to your pharmacist. In particular, levofloxacin and metronidazole have some interactions with some of the common immunosuppressives, so just do a quick check on drug interactions. And then consider checking a trough. If, your pa if that patient is in your ED at the time that they're due for their next, next dose of medication, and you can draw a trough of that medication, then that can be really helpful because if that trough comes back very high, now we've reopened the differ differential diagnosis to include opportunistic infections. And you're going to phone a friend. And in addition to phoning your cardiology friend, you should also phone an infectious disease friend. There is literature out there that supports the early consultation of an infectious disease consult in a solid organ transplant patient coming to the ED with a fever or with suspected infection. It reduces their mortality getting your ID colleagues on board early. Okay, so let's move on to rejection. Acute rejection in the heart transplant patient is most common in the first two years, although it can occur at any time, especially if the patient misses a dose or two of their immunosuppressive meds. Uh, we had a patient come to our emergency department within the past few months who had had a heart transplant many years prior and he came to the ED, this was in like probably January, he came to the ED because he had had palpitations while shoveling snow. And I know I'm speaking to mostly a group of Marylanders, maybe some people who are watching online work in a snowy place, but if you work in a snowy place in the ED, the positive predictive value for badness of any kind of complaint while shoveling snow is gigantic. So something bad is going on if the patient's like, I had X while I was shoveling snow. And indeed something bad was going on for this patient. His workup in the ED was really unexciting. He had an EKG that was unchanged, he had stable vitals, he had normal labs, he had a normal chest x-ray. But when you really got down to it and really talked to him about what had happened in the past few weeks, he had missed three days of his immunosuppressive medications about three weeks prior. And that was because he lived in this tiny town in northern Maine where his pharmacy had not been able to get the medicine, and he didn't tell anybody because he knew that that was a bad thing, and now he's in the ED three weeks later with palpitations. He ended up getting an endomyocardial biopsy and did indeed have rejection that was treated. That's kind of the time frame you do want to think about. If a patient misses a few doses, it's going to be a few weeks later that they might come in with a symptom. So I would be careful in that patient who's coming in with any symptom to really ask about any life events that may have happened to or within the past month to see if, um, if they'll confess to you any medication noncompliance. Rejection is a little bit tricky. Well, all of this is tricky, but it's particularly tricky for us in the ED because you can suspect it clinically, but there's a million things that should make you suspect it clinically, and the only way to diagnose it is on an endomyocardial biopsy. What should make you suspect rejection? 
You should suspect it if the patient comes in with heart failure symptoms, if they're coming in with palpitations and syncope, fever, GI symptoms, especially if they look volume overloaded. If you have the extraordinarily quiet work environment or the exceptionally good hearing to be able to pick up an S3 when you're evaluating your patient, that's a concerning finding for rejection. They may develop new onset arrhythmia. In particular, atrial fibrillation is pretty rare post-heart transplant, and if you see AFib in a heart transplant patient, that's rejection until proven otherwise. You might see new low voltage on an EKG. You might see a reduced EF on your bedside ultrasound. Although be aware, patients with rejection and patients with vasculopathy, which we'll talk about next, causing heart failure in the heart transplant patient, 50% of that is diastolic dysfunction, not systolic dysfunction. So don't let a normal-looking EF move you away from this diagnosis. Obviously, good to do anyway. I haven't really spent much time on pericardial disease uh, because that's not as common in these folks, but certainly good to be looking for an effusion and take a look at that ejection fraction. What are you going to do if you suspect rejection? Here's a case where you're going to, as always, phone your friends. Oftentimes, these patients will come in to get a biopsy to diagnose whether they are, in fact, rejecting, and they may get pulse dose steroids or other treatment to empirically treat rejection of their graft. Infection, rejection, and vasculopathy. So I didn't want you guys to have to remember more than three things. So I have to confess that I kind of put two different diseases under this heading of vasculopathy. But they're both to do with coronary artery disease in the heart transplant patient. Heart transplant patients can get coronary atherosclerotic disease just like anybody else can get. You guys are very familiar with this kind of pathophysiology. You know how these patients present. You know what to do when you see them in your emergency department. However, there's a second entity that is unique to heart transplant patients called cardiac allograft vasculopathy. This is thought to be a kind of chronic rejection of the graft, and as opposed to these focal and discrete lesions that might rupture acutely, cardiac allograft vasculopathy causes a very diffuse, very symmetric, very circumferential process that affects all the vessels simultaneously in the heart. It is pretty ubiquitous in the heart transplant patient. There have been enormous strides in terms of improving infectious complications, improving rejection complications. Cardiac allograft vasculopathy is proving to be a little bit tougher to confront in these patients. For patients who are five years out of their heart transplant, 50% of them will have cardiac allograft vasculopathy, and the numbers go up from there. So it's kind of an inevitable thing to develop. Unfortunately, once they get this, if it's diffuse and significant and they're developing progressive heart failure, the only treatment is a repeat heart transplant. You can envision, looking at these pictures, that you might expect these patients to present differently as well with this different pathophysiology. So your patient with cardiac allograft vasculopathy, this kind of ongoing, progressive, diffuse luminal narrowing, will cause kind of micro-ischemia throughout the entire myocardium. They're probably not going to feel pain from that, again, so they may present to you with this simmering, weeks-long course of progressive exercise intolerance and heart failure. That's as opposed to uh, your patients with more focal lesions that you guys are all used to how they would present acutely with an acute coronary syndrome. If you look back in the literature for maybe like the 10 to 15 years ago time frame, a STEMI or an NSTEMI or a lesion that underwent PCI in a heart transplant patient was a case reportable event. It's 
like, look at this patient who had a heart transplant, who had a STEMI. That's astounding. That never happens. What we're learning more recently is that more and more heart transplant patients are getting these more focal lesions. It's not all the cardiac allograft vasculopathy. There's a few reasons for that. One is probably improvement in recognition, as there's been improved understanding that patients are not going to have the typical chest pain symptoms. Maybe we're catching these cases a little bit more. We also know that patients are living longer and longer after their heart transplant because advances are always being made in treating those other comorbidities. So now we're seeing patients surviving many, many years long enough to develop perhaps some more traditional coronary artery disease. So rethinking vasculopathy, the diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome is increasing in transplant patients. They may have focal lesions on cardiac catheterization, and if they get PCI, they do better. So there's really been a shift in the understanding of coronary artery disease in the heart transplant patient. Just to recap, allograft vasculopathy, diffuse concentric, might present with, maybe with stable angina if they have some reinnervation or a stable anginal equivalent, progressive heart failure, coronary atherosclerosis, focal, and they may present with an acute coronary syndrome. So what are you supposed to do when you have a patient who's had a heart transplant and they come in with, say, acute diaphoresis, nausea, vomiting, and they have STL, new ST elevations on their EKG, diagnostic vestemi, or they have ischemic changes on their EKG and an elevated troponin, and you think they have an NSTEMI. Well, the good news is that you do everything exactly the same. The emergency treatment of ACS in the heart transplant patient is just the same as anybody else. What if they come in with a simmering, several-week-long, progressive heart failure syndrome? And you take a look at them, and you're like, wow, they look like they're in acute heart failure. Well, again, the treatment is the same. Do the same treatments. They're all safe. There's no differences. You guys have heard extensively about what to do in these folks. Nothing is different in the heart transplant patient. The only difference here is that if this simmering progressive heart failure is thought to be due to cardiac allograft vasculopathy, then that patient's only treatment option is another heart transplant. So remember, when these patients come to your door, and again, I think it, you could use this for almost any complaint. Maybe if they're literally showing up with a splinter, you don't have to ask if they have vasculopathy. But uh, always, always consider infection, rejection, and vasculopathy. One more quick way to kind of uh, synthesize it in your mind is to think about the time frames. We talked already about the time frame for infections up here. Recall that acute rejection is a 30-day to about two-year process although can go on longer if the patient misses their meds. Vasculopathy and atherosclerosis, around the one-year time mark is when those things are becoming more prevalent. And I want to devote just a few seconds to talking about this little tiny cancer arrow down here. Because after five years post a heart transplant, the number one killer of these patients is cancer. They have 110 times the rate of cancer of the average population, right? This is higher than the rates of cancer in any other kind of transplant. And the current thinking is that these people require much more aggressive immunosuppression, and that sets them up for, for very high rates of cancer. 50% of their cancers are skin cancer. And I wanted to highlight this because I feel like maybe there's somebody out there someday who's going to see a heart transplant patient in your ED who comes in and says, well, I just have this funny little spot on my skin and I just wondered if you would check it out. And maybe you'll remember this, and you'll know that that patient needs to be seen by dermatology right away because they have such a high rate of skin cancer. Management tips. So I've told you already that if you're looking at a patient with an acute coronary syndrome, 
if you're looking at a patient with heart failure, you can do all the same things you would normally do in conjunction with your consultants, of course. The place where management really differs is when we come to treating arrhythmias in the heart transplant patient. Bradyarrhythmias in the heart transplant patient are much the vast majority of abnormal heart rhythms. Most of the time, this is sinus node dysfunction. And about 12% of heart transplant patients over time will develop progressive sinus node dysfunction and require a pacemaker. If they develop an acute bradyarrhythmia, most often that's rejection. There's actually some, for some reason, there can be focal rejection just of the conducting system. And so that patient can have focal rejection that causes a bradyarrhythmia. Beware the normal heart rate in the heart transplant patient. They'll usually know their baseline heart rate. If they typically run at 110, and they're coming to see you and their heart rate is now 70, one of two things is happening. It's possible that they're getting some re-innervation and they've reaccumulated some vagal tone. It's possible. But certainly much more concerning is that they're undergoing acute rejection that's affecting their SA node. So you have to worry if they come in with a suddenly and unexpectedly normal heart rate. Remember that atropine won't work in these patients, so don't bother. You want to use epinephrine, isoproterenol, or pacing if they require it. You can use transvenous pace, um, transcutaneous pacing, and you can float a transvenous pacer in a heart transplant patient as you would in somebody else. Tachyarrhythmias are pretty uncommon post-heart transplant, which I think is really fascinating. They think that this is because you don't have any sympathetic stimulation to the heart anymore, so you're way less likely to get a tachyarrhythmia. If you see one, though, you've got to ask, is it infection, rejection, or vasculopathy? If you need to rate control somebody, beta blockers are the preferred drug. There are some interactions between calcium channel blockers and uh, the calcineurin inhibitor immunosuppressive meds that these patients are on. There's also similar interactions with amiodarone. If you need those meds, you can use them for the short term, but really, if possible, you want to choose a beta blocker preferentially. Finally, we talked a little bit about this patient being hypersensitive to adenosine. You can use adenosine if they're in SVT, if they're that rare heart transplant patient who comes in an SVT. You just have to use half the dose. So instead of giving 6 milligrams and then 12, you want to give 3 and then 6. This has been shown to be safe. Just cut the dose in half. So now that we've talked a little bit about how to approach the heart transplant patient that comes to the ED, let's go back to our case. So you guys remember this is the 41-year-old woman. She's had this kind of simmering course for a couple weeks. She had gotten acutely worse that day, which is what prompted her to come to the ED. She had this awful-looking chest x-ray. She had an EKG that's not normal, but it was pretty close to her baseline EKG. The team that saw this patient did an excellent job treating and evaluating for infection. And it's all very easy always to say in hindsight, but I think looking back at this case, there was a little bit of a tunnel vision, a little bit of anchoring on infection as a cause of her symptoms. She had presented with some reports of fever. She had that awful chest x-ray. Could this be infection? Let's go after it aggressively, which was great. She uh, had an ID consult very early on. She got broad-spectrum antibiotics. She got workup for infection. They covered her with Bactrim. But it became pretty clear pretty early on that maybe there was something else at play. This patient was getting clinically worse, more hypoxic, more tachypnic, and appropriately the question came up, well, what are we missing? At that point, there was increased involvement of the cardiology service to help, and there was kind of a reopening of her differential diagnosis. The team considered, well, could this be rejection? It certainly could be. This particular patient, just by coincidence, had had a fairly recent endomyocardial biopsy that showed no signs of rejection 
and she had not had any changes to her immunosuppression. So the thought was, well, that's possible, but it really doesn't seem like the most likely explanation. What about coronary artery disease? What about vasculopathy? She's six years post her transplant. We've really got to worry about that. While this is happening, the patient's decompensating, which prompted some repeat investigations as well. She got a repeat EKG, and it's subtle, but her anterior ST segments are elevated over her baseline EKG. She also got a bedside ultrasound, which showed an anterior wall motion abnormality, and a troponin returned, which was significantly elevated. This patient went off to the cardiac catheterization lab emergently, and she was found to have 100% LAD lesion on her cardiac cath. She also had evidence of diffuse cardiac allograft vasculopathy. So the thought was that this was her manifestation of her cardiac allograft vasculopathy. This lesion was stented, and the patient has actually done quite well since then. So I think that case really highlights the importance of keeping this very broad differential diagnosis. So just to sum it up, the heart transplant patient in the ED, I've told you today why you can't trust them. Talked about the importance of not going it alone, making sure you phone a friend. When that patient comes to your door, pretty much no matter what they show up with, ask, is it infection? Is it rejection? Is it vasculopathy? And reassuringly, I think there's not a whole ton of management uh, differences that you have to retain in your memory. Just remember those few little details that have to do with the treatment of arrhythmia in the heart transplant patient. And that's it for the morning. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Well, next up on EMCast, we're going to talk about something that we have talked about before, and that is the topic of syncope. We've talked about syncope a few times on EMCast before, but this is the first time that this topic has actually shown up in an issue of JAMA, specifically in their Rational Clinical Exam series, which are a great series of articles where they review all the literature and they link sensitivities and specificities and likelihood ratios and all kinds of fancy statistics to specific questions. And this article, which was published, let's see, June 25th, 2019, so very recent. This article is called, Did This Patient Have Cardiac Syncope in the Rational Clinical Exam Systematic Reviews Series? And obviously, that's an important question because when patients come in with syncope, that's probably the main thing that we're always worried about. And so joining me to discuss this topic is one of my colleagues, Dr. Cheyenne Fallot. Uh, Cheyenne's a newcomer to the EMCast, so Cheyenne, welcome to the EMCast. Thank you so, for having me. I know you've been listening for many years diligently, <laughs> right? <laughs> obviously. Oh, obviously. Okay. <laughs> no comment. All right. So anyway, well, the article starts out with a sample case. And uh, the, the sample case, just very briefly, is a 70-year-old woman who presents to the clinic with her son for a transient loss of consciousness. There is no trauma. There is no chest pain that preceded it. Apparently, she felt some nausea and felt a little warm, but there is no chest pain or any other concerns like that. She passed out. She had a little bit of shaking or twitching of one of her limbs, and then she woke up. Her vital signs were pretty unremarkable, and EKG was pretty unremarkable. And the question is, does this patient have cardiac syncope? So it's the type of case I'm sure that we all see in the emergency department not uncommonly and it's a good question because if it's cardiac syncope, we're going to bring him in. And if you're pretty sure it's not cardiac syncope or some type of benign cause, you could probably send him home, although I'd, I'd be a little nervous about a 70-year-old. Yeah, so, it's a little little older than I would feel comfortable yeah, right so, off the bat. Anyway, well, let, let's just go ahead and get started with this. So, Cheyenne, first of all, can you remind us how syncope is defined 
and why it's important to figure out if the cause of syncope was cardiac. So this article starts out right off the bat defining syncope as a transient loss of consciousness with spontaneous recovery due to a global reduction in perfusion pressure, cerebral perfusion pressure. And it's obviously important to differentiate this uh, benign cause of syncope from other serious and potentially life-threatening causes of cardiac syncope and and also mimics such as seizures um, that the article touches on. And depending on which of the presentations this falls into, it will completely guide not only the disposition and workup, but also the follow-up care and any further testing um, based on which, which of the boxes we think it falls into. So transient loss of consciousness, and it should be a spontaneous recovery. So if you have to give them an amp D50, technically that's not syncope. Or if, if they wake up in response to Narcan, technically that's not syncope either. It's, uh, it's confused for that many times here right. in Baltimore, but not so much. <laughs> um, and also there should generally be a loss of postural tone. And that that's one thing that I think kind of helps distinguish between seizure versus syncope. Which And we'll, we'll get into the seizure versus syncope issue in just a bit. So if we follow the true definition of syncope that you just mentioned... There really are only a few categories of syncope that emerge. People always wonder or worry about neurologic causes, but the neurologic causes really don't have spontaneous recovery, nor are they transient. They don't fully recover. I mean, if somebody passes out and they wake up and they're posturing, that's not syncope either. Yeah. That's a, a stroke. Or if it's a, if a long postictal period of 15, 20 minutes right. follows that episode, that would uh, point away from, from a true syncope as right. well. Uh, yeah, when the patient comes in and says, yeah, I passed out at 2 o'clock in the morning and I woke up at 7 in the morning, that's not syncope either. That's probably Jack Daniels. Probably. Or... <laughs> so, but there, there really are just a few categories of syncope that emerge if you follow the true definition. There's cardiac syncope, and there's also reflex syncope, and there's orthostatic syncope. Can you just briefly tell us what these last two refer to? Yeah, so we'll we'll touch on the cardiac syncope for the for the most of the remaining episode, but just to touch on those other two first. So reflex syncope um, refers to a centrally mediated reduction in the heart rate and or the systemic vascular resistance in response to some stimulus as a reflex mechanism. When the the article talks and gives a very nice description of what happens, and it goes through when the body senses that it has a reduction of venous return, cardiac output, or blood pressure, the intracardiacs and arterial baroreceptors signal to the central nervous system that it should decrease the parasympathetic vagal tone and increase the sympathetic tone, thus preserving cerebral perfusion pressure, as we touched about previously. But some patients may have an exaggerated response to this, like excessive increase in their heart rate or their heart tries to contract vigorously against a relatively underfilled ventricle, especially if they're dehydrated. And the intracardiac baroreceptors sometimes become paradoxically overstimulated and leads to a second centrally mediated reflex that causes increased vagal tone and reduced sympathetic tone, and that leads to reduction in heart rate, peripheral vascular resistance, global reduction in cerebral perfusion, and the final common pathway to that is syncope. And the triggers are are varied, and one of the kind of subcategories of reflex syncope is vasovagal syncope, which is usually initiated by sitting or standing for a prolonged period of time, and it can lead to up to 500 to 800 cc's of venous pooling below the level of the heart that's triggering this mechanism. 
But it can also be triggered, the article mentions, um, by afferent central stimuli, such as pain, the sight of blood, which we're kind of used to. My sister does that quite often. Mm. Or uh, visceral stimuli, such as distended bladder or stomach, or even pressure on the sinus baroreceptors, such as from a tight-collared shirt while turning. And these are oftentimes what we try to sometimes take advantage of to, to break SVT as well. And then along with the syncope, if they're triggered through this reflex, you can have different prodromal symptoms due to the uh, efferent response, such as headaches, sweating, sensation of cold, warmth, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and other such uh, symptoms. And then the other part that we touched on, you mentioned reflex and orthostatic syncope. That's primarily due to a reduction of venous return by either true volume depletion, dehydration, GI bleeding, just not taking in enough fluid, or a reduction in the systemic vascular resistance from medications or different disorders. And that usually occurs within about five minutes of sitting or sure. standing. Okay. All right. So orthostatic, usually we're pretty good about, and then the vasovagal or, or, or reflex type I guess one of the tip-offs there is that if, if they pass out in front of you, you can check their heart rate and look for the bradycardia, right. whereas most everything else is going to be a bit on the tachycardic side. All right, so we've talked enough about reflex and orthostatic. Let's get on to the, the main part of this. With regards to true cardiac syncope, how often does that actually occur in the emergency department? So the article mentioned that syncope as a whole, all comers, has an incidence of 0.6% among all adults, and that rises to up to 6% among elderly patients with a prevalence in adults of 18 to 47%. And of all of those cases, cardiac syncope accounts for, between the various studies, 5 to 21% of those cases, which is a, can be up to a good amount of what we see in the emergency department on a yearly basis. Sure, sure. I don't think a shift goes by that I don't say syncope while working in right. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, let's get on to the main purpose of this paper. Was this patient's syncope due to a cardiac cause or not? What did the authors actually find? So I'm just going to let you kind of run with this. Mm -hmm. and maybe I'll throw some questions in intermittently here, but uh, in general, they talked about history and physical exam findings, and they talked about lab tests. So you go ahead and start up, and I'll try to interrupt you with questions here and there. Sounds good. So um, just to kind of set the framework, the study was a systematic review among all English language publications that included search terms of syncope, consciousness, unconsciousness, or seizures among patients. They didn't do the search for fell out. No, that, yeah, we, if <laughs> they were Baltimore studies, uh, the done fell out, the DFOs would have been in there too. Bummer. All right. So that doesn't make its way lot. into the literature. <laughs> the, um, the studies had to include at least 10 participants. They went down to as low as 12 years old just so they could include mm. a broader spectrum of studies. So they screened over 11,000 abstracts, um, reviewed over 550 full text articles, and after um, their exclusion criteria were applied, they ended up with 12 studies that they included. Nine of them were prospective studies, and six of them were from the ED setting. So that's a good amount of, of really um, of studies that are applicable to our, our patient population. Of these studies, uh, 9 to 58% had final diagnoses of cardiac syncope, and 3 to 37% uh, remained undiagnosed as to their uh, cause of syncope. 
Um, so kind of right off the bat, the demographics that they looked at, the big ones that stood out were the patient's age at the first episode of syncope. If it was above 35 years old, they had a likelihood ratio of 3.3% that this is cardiac syncope. And conversely, if they were under the age of 35, it was a likelihood ratio of 0.13 for cardiac syncope. All right, so 35 appears to be when, when, when everything starts falling when apart. We, uh, when we go downhill. <laughs> That's not good. All right, what else? So history of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter uh, had a likelihood ratio of 7.3% for pointing towards cardiac syncope, a known history of heart failure, and uh, severe structural heart disease as well. 7.3, heart failure of 2.7 to 3.4 likelihood ratio. So, so history of heart failure? A history of heart failure. Okay, so a history yes. of heart failure has a likelihood ratio of? About 2.7 to 3.4, so okay. about 3. All right. And known severe structural heart disease, like valvular disease, had also likelihood ratios of 3.3 to 4.8. All right. Uh, kind of moving on to the precipitating or predisposing factors that the study looked at, the main ones were the likelihood ratios were kind of wide-ranged, but syncope during exertion or during effort had a likelihood ratio of 1.4 up to 15 to point towards cardiac syncope. It's a big range. It's so. a big range. And syncope after using the toilet also had a very big range, but a likelihood ratio of 0.05, so it actually pointed away from cardiac syncope, okay, which right. we... Which we kind of figure. Yeah, kind of points more, I guess, towards that reflex syncope. Right. right. Syncope while supine, just going back, did have a likelihood ratio of 1.1 to 4.9, kind of pointing towards cardiac syncope. Um, but that was also a pretty broad range. Sure. Low likelihood ratios, so pointing away from cardiac syncope, were pain or medical procedures preceding the event with a likelihood ratio of 0.12, which, again, is kind of, we, we figure on that. That's mm -hmm. what we learn even as med students. <laughs> Sometimes if, uh, if we wander into the ORs and don't fare well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or uh, syncope in a warm place had a likelihood ratio of 0.17. So I think oftentimes with the syncopes that we get coming from church or something when people are standing in a in a warm environment for a long time. Church syncope. Church syncope. Very, it's a very separate well category. Right. <laughs> it's its own category right. of reflex syncope. <laughs> I don't know if there's an ICD-10 for that. Though. There should be. There I should be. There probably is somewhere in that <laughs> epic system. And then um, reported symptoms. So uh, dyspnea prior to syncope had a likelihood ratio of three and a half, which also is, is kind of what we learn historically we should be a little concerned about, sure. as well as chest pain prior to the syncope had a likelihood ratio of 3.4 to 3.8. What I found interesting were palpitations were kind of inconsistent, and they didn't really find strong likelihood ratios that argued either for or against cardiac syncope. Mm -hmm. The kind of symptoms that pointed away from cardiac syncope were mood changes or prodromal preoccupation with details, the study phrased it. So um, was the person really focused on what was going on right before this happened? That had a likelihood ratio of 0 0.09. Preoccupation with preoccupation details. Preoccupation with details. Classic. Many of our patients have <laughs> varying ranges of preoccupation right. with details. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling cold um, immediately preceding or during the, the episode of syncope and headaches had similar likelihood ratios of 0.16 and 0.17. 
abdominal discomfort had likelihood ratio of 0.21 to 0.39. And these are all kind of those efferent and vagal responses mm-hmm. that we kind of talked about previously. So that all makes sense. Sure. Pallor or completely absent prodrome argued neither for or against cardiac syncope. Well, that's which, interesting because we've always been taught that if somebody has no prodrome and then they just bam, go out then that was a strong predictor of uh, an arrhythmia. Yeah, that's what but, I always thought too, but huh. the study didn't uh, didn't find consistently reported uh, evidence of this. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then what I also found interesting and what makes sense, but it's never it had never occurred to me to directly ask about this of witnesses or family members was witnessed cyanosis during the episode. Um, had a likelihood ratio of 6.2 wow. to cardiac syncope. I've never asked that before. I have never once. I ask about a lot of other things, but I think I'm going to start asking about that a lot more now. Starting this afternoon. (laughs) Starting Starting my shift. All right. Uh, Mood changes after the syncope had a low likelihood ratio for cardiac syncope of 0.21. So it's interesting. What do mood change after syncope refers to? Like they're really upset or something like that? Maybe emotionally disturbed about the event that just happened. Hmm. But um, so now we have, it it did specify that mood changes either before or after the event are low likelihood ratios. And then inability to remember their behavior prior to the syncope also had a likelihood ratio of 0.25. So if they're a little bit amnestic to what happened before then that's not likely cardiac syncope. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And then the studies looked at, there were two scores that they looked at that kind of draw upon varying combinations of these variables. And those two scores were the evaluation of guidelines in syncope study, the EGSYS score, that looked at six separate variables. And then the vasovagal score that looked at seven separate variables. And they pulled in a different combination, and the the article kind of goes through all of these variables, but it was basically presence or absence of palpitations, heart disease, abnormal EKGs, different prodromes, precipitating and predisposing factors, sweating, warmth, feeling lightheaded, having these episodes occur prior, witness cyanosis was included in one of them. So it was varying combinations of these scores. And the... Uh, EGSYS score was if you had a low score, it was associated with a lower likelihood of cardiac syncope, and the likelihood ratios on that score were 0.12 to 0.17. And then the vasovagal score was kind of going in the opposite direction, so if you had a score less than negative 2, it was associated with a lower likelihood of cardiac syncope with a ratio of 8.6. Hmm. Or, sorry, a higher likelihood of cardiac syncope. Right. With a likelihood of 8 points. Okay. I've heard of that, that EGSYS score. Don't use it, but I've heard of it. I've never heard of that vasovagal score. So that's interesting. Yeah, and that particularly looked at, um, it was interesting, it assigned uh, negative point values to a history of, uh, kind of broke down EKG findings of bifascicular block asystole SVT, which I think of asystole and SVT as being two very different yeah. <laughs> EKG findings. <laughs> Those are two ends of the spectrum, I think. Witness cyanosis, age over 35, and memory of the loss of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And then positive points were assigned to things that w- we would find very reassuring factors. So have they had lightheadedness with prolonged sitting or standing, sweating or warmth prior to the syncope, past lightheaded spells or fainting with pain or medical settings? And that that score fared fairly well when Mm -hmm. you looked at the likelihood ratios. 
Well, we'll have to start checking that out in the uh, <laughs> MD Calc or on the internet, whatever. We'll need a new dot phrase for uh, yeah. for Epic. The study also kind of went into um, to some other things like labs and EKGs that we can okay. touch on. Okay. Well, what what type of lab tests did they find useful? So they don't say the white count. <laughs> so um, they looked at the the white count. I'm just no. joking. <laughs> they looked at uh, the what we would what we would consider probably a knee jerk reaction to order a troponin out of triage. So they looked at high sensitive troponin T's and troponin I's, and as well as uh, the NT pro BMPs and BMPs. And they kind of broke down these labs into whether you were, um, they looked at the likelihood ratios of a greater than certain value that mm-hmm. they found very kind of strong likelihood ratio, so in the fives. And then they looked at the lower cutoffs, so likelihood ratios of 0.15, 0.16. And then that intermediate range for each had a likelihood ratio of about one, so neither useful for cardiac syncope or not. So when they looked at the troponin Ts, they had a cutoff of 42 and 5. So if you were over 42, that was a likelihood ratio of about 5. And if you were less than 5, that was a likelihood ratio of 0.15. Okay. The high sensitivity troponin I's were similar, but using 2.2 as the low cutoff and 31.3 for the high cutoff. Okay. And then the NT Pro BMP uh, lab looked at a cutoff of the upper limit of normal of 1966 with a likelihood ratio of 5.8, and a lower limit of normal of 69 with a likelihood ratio of 0.16 if it fell below that. Um, so interestingly, they said about 36% of the patients included in the studies had BNPs of either greater than 1966 with a 95% specificity of ruling it in or cardiac syncope, or a BNP of less than 69 with a 95% sensitivity of ruling out cardiac syncope, hmm. which is interesting because I've never ordered a BNP, I don't think, on, on patients with right. syncope. Yeah. So I, I don't know who is who is ordering these. I, I know there's one scoring system out there called the BRACES score, the B-R-A-C-E-S, and I remember what all the letters stand for, except for the B. The B stood for a BNP. <laughs> and it didn't really catch on. It didn't become really popular. Uh, actually, the R, I believe, that required a maybe a rectal exam or a guaiac, and that mm-hmm. also didn't go over well. And so BNP is not commonly tested unless somebody's got abnormal lung sounds or tachypnea, I think. Yeah. So, I don't know. It seems to me common sense that if their lungs are clear and they're not short of breath and they're not tachypnic, you can probably skip the BNP yeah. unless it's marked it's a marker for some completely other thing. But if somebody's in CHF with syncope, then hopefully you'll pick up something else yeah, besides and if, the BNP. If someone has a history of heart failure, we know from the bat that they ha- are at a greater risk of, right. of developing cardiac syncope yeah. through, especially if they have a low EF and their predisposition to, to have, you know, a VTAC event or something like yeah. that. Um, but that's, that's also a clinical right. Clinical right. findings. Well, you bring up a good point. Maybe the BNP is simply a marker of somebody who has chronic CHF, and chronic CHF patients are more likely to have cardiac syncope. Yeah. And so. of course, we don't know what their oftentimes in the ED. We don't know what their baseline right. BNPs are. So I don't know. Even though the studies included it, I don't know how how much I'm going to use that in my own practice. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you about your practice in just a bit. So we'll hold that thought for a second. So okay. So those are the lab tests. The troponin and BNP were the main ones. Thankfully, no. White blood cell count, no, unfortunately. So all those CBCs <laughs> that get sent off in syncope, 
don't appear to be evidence-based. Go figure. Huh. All right. So, Shocking, you know, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a bit disappointed this article didn't get into more detail about the the EKG. What's up with that? I knew you were going to bring up EKGs. <laughs> I came prepared. <laughs> so um, it did touch on it briefly in the two different scoring systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the rest of the article didn't mention it, but the EGSYS score um, does consider an abnormal EKG as part of their scoring for cardiac syncope. And the abnormal EKG, they have very specific definitions for it. So they said bradycardia less than a heart rate of 40, repetitive sinoatrial blocks, sinus pauses greater than three seconds, Hmm. ST changes greater than one millimeter of elevation or depression, QT prolongation greater than 440. 440 is not that Not that much. I feel like every patient in Baltimore has a a QTC of greater than 440. (laughs) Secondary (laughs) methadone, right? The methadone. Um, And then they also looked at VTAC, AV blocks, second or third degrees, alternating left and right bundle branch blocks, six sinus syndrome, or rapid SVT arrhythmias, or pacemaker malfunctions. Okay. The vasovagal score, the other score, um, defined their EKG abnormalities of bifascicular block, asystole, or SVT, as I mentioned previously. But bifascicular block, SVT, and asystole. Asystole. But I, I would like to just take a few minutes and kind of broaden our our topic of EKGs and syncope because especially for some of the patients that I'm already reassured about their presentation, sometimes an EKG is the only thing I send off. And mm-hmm. it's important to be able to not only know how to read it, but know how to document it when uh, when you do get that in someone with syncope. So I, I talk about this frequently with my, especially my interns and my medical students um, and teaching them how to break down what they look for um, on an EKG in patients with syncope. So uh, there will be the the obvious findings that I tell them are like arrhythmias if they have VTAC or uh, very big bradycardias and ischemia. Mm -hmm. So not only ST elevation and ST depressions, but also do they have um, T-wave inversions in either contiguous leads or isolated in AVL that would kind of raise our suspicion. Do they have loss of precordial T-wave balance? Are they having some poor R-wave progression that's new from prior? Stuff like that. And then the interval issues, so stuff like AV blocks, bundle branch blocks, short PR intervals that would raise suspicion for something like WPW if they had a delta wave as well, Um, prolonged QTs that, again, may raise the concern for torsades, whether they're on methadone here in Mm -hmm. Baltimore, whether it's congenital. There are a lot of reasons and a lot of medications that can cause prolonged QTs. Then I have a separate box of anatomical and electrical issues. So that includes stuff like hokum, looking for kind of dagger-like Q waves, ARVC, looking at if there is epsilon waves or brugata morphology. And then not only just cardiac syncope findings um, like all of this, but um, is there uh, evidence of right heart strain that would make you think more strongly about a pulmonary embolism? Or do they have those big cerebral T waves that would make you think they had a large subarachnoid hemorrhage and this is a big catechol surge? So EKGs are are very telling in syncope. and, And for an article on cardiac syncope, I just wanted to kind of broaden this out a little sure. bit. Sure. I feel better. Good. Thank you. Good. <laughs> All of right. Of course, I got, I got most of that teaching over the years from, uh, from you. And I got it from <laughs> other people that are a lot smarter than me also. So we just keep passing it down. Teamwork. So now one of the challenges in syncope that sometimes comes up, 
uh, is something that you alluded to earlier, and that is the challenge of figuring out whether somebody had a, a, a true syncopal episode versus a seizure. Because, as we know, a lot of people that have seizures have seizures because they hypoperfuse the brain, and when you don't perfuse the brain, you have a tendency to fall and shake a little bit. So I've heard the neurologist say in the past, not everything that falls and shakes is a seizure. Sometimes <laughs> it can be syncope also. So were there any factors that they talked about in this article that they found strongly favor one or the other that can be helpful for us? Yeah, so I like that they mentioned fairly early on, even before they got into the, the breakdown of syncope and, and seizure, is that if you have shaking during a true syncopal event, mm -hmm. not a seizure event, it will usually occur at or, or after the syncope, so mm -hmm. not before, because you can have, you know, focal seizures where you start to get a little shaking sure. and then it generalizes uh -huh. and that would point away from it. And it's usually gone by about five minutes in. So it's, it's rarely a prolonged shaking, um, if it's in the setting of a syncope versus okay. a seizure. But the things that argued, um, strongly for syncope are a loss of consciousness with prolonged sitting or standing with a likelihood ratio of 20. So that falls mm. back to that church syncope sure. <laughs> category or altar singers. Dyspnea before the loss of consciousness with a likelihood ratio of 13. Palpitations before the loss of consciousness with a likelihood ratio of 8.3, which is interesting because palpitations were actually mentioned previously in the article that point neither towards cardiac syncope or away from cardiac syncope. But if they have any palpitations, then it does point more strongly towards syncope as a whole. Versus seizure. Versus seizure, right. yeah. Okay. And then the presence of coronary artery disease, which... I would think leads more towards cardiac syncope than non-cardiac syncope, right. but uh -huh. that had a likelihood ratio of 13 over um, seizures. Okay. But of course, a lot of patients have comorbid CAD with seizures, so mm -hmm. um, that might not be so uh, the sole factor that we can use. <laughs> okay. But um, the things that argued for seizures were reported head turning during the event as opposed to before, like to trigger the baroreceptors. This was actually during the event okay. with likelihood ratio of 14. Unusual posturing with a likelihood ratio of 13. Urinary incontinence with a likelihood ratio of 6.7. The absence of presyncope with a likelihood ratio of 5.6. Um, presence of a cut tongue with a likelihood ratio of 17, or no recall of events prior to the uh, prior to the syncope with a likelihood ratio of 4. So all of those factors argued more towards seizure than syncope. Okay. Definitely they, helpful. Yeah. They also mentioned one tool um, that was really only one of these, ultimately 12 studies that were included, looked at truly the seizure versus syncope kind of dichotomy. And... They referenced one study, uh, that study, that used a prediction tool that was retrospectively applied to their data. Um, they used nine independent variables that were described further in one of the appendix, but a score of greater than or equal to one predicted seizures with a likelihood ratio of 16, and a score less than one predicted syncope with a likelihood ratio of 16. Okay. But again... Who knows how, how applicable that would be in a prospective study and generalizable to the entire mm -hmm. population as a whole. Definitely helpful. And we've all been taught to look for the tongue bite and the loss of continence. And I think part of the reason that the tongue bite points towards seizures, seizures are an increase in postural tone, so you kind of bite down. Mm -hmm. Whereas syncope is loss of tone. You can still have a tongue whack. 
mm-hmm. with syncope if you fall on your face, but you're going to have other signs of trauma as well. Hopefully other lacks around the face and yeah. not just an isolated tongue. Exactly. But while we're so. talking about the, the tongue locks, it's also important to remember that the lateral tongue lacerations or bites have a higher prediction for seizures than the, the front of the tongue. Okay. All right. Because um, even people who come in with the old term with pseudo seizures, um, they oftentimes have more anterior tongue bites compared to true uh, seizures that are lateral tongue Okay. Lines. All right. That's a nice pearl. I didn't know that. Never thought to look at where the tongue lock is, <laughs> but I will this afternoon. Okay. That's the second thing I'm going to do this afternoon uh, after the um, asking about <laughs> the witness, witness cyanosis. Right. Well, just to wrap things up, let's put all of this in practical terms. Let's say now that you are the expert in syncope, let's say during your next shift, paramedics bring you a patient who reportedly fell to the ground and may have had a little bit of shaking what what are the key things that you got from this article that you are definitely going to use in trying to figure out whether the patient had cardiac syncope or not? So kind of just going through the through the things that I usually ask mm-hmm. for for syncope to begin with. And now I just have kind of the the evidence to back me up a mm-hmm. little bit more. So like with every patient, I want to take a good history and do a good physical exam and starting off like what is their age, their medical history. What were they doing when this event occurred? Was it while they were lying supine or during uh, exertion? Has this ever happened before? And do they have any known triggers? Do they, you know, vasovagal with every vena puncture that they have? Or uh, did they go down as soon as they walked into an OR as a third-year medical student? Mm -hmm. Did they have shaking? Did, um, like you mentioned, but how soon did this shaking occur? How long did it last for? And what did it look like? If you ask uh, the witnesses or EMS to describe it for you, sometimes they say they were shaking and they do a few twitches and it's they said that it resolves whereas if it was a definite rhythmic shaking of a certain extremity that would make me more concerned for a seizure sure did they have head turning and was it prior to the loss of consciousness and then they dropped or was it as part of postural positioning during the event mm-hmm. did they have witness cyanosis did they do they have any tongue lax and then of course what does their EKG show you know I most of the time uh, have reviewed the patient's EKG and syncope even prior to seeing the patient in the first place. So that will uh, definitely sway me one way or another. Mm -hmm. And if a troponin was ordered out of triage, which a lot of times it is, um, either to our dismay or or happiness. <laughs> what does that What does that show? And then, again, as we touched on, I'm not sure if if ordering a BNP is something that I'm going to start incorporating into my practice for for syncope patients. But that is also sometimes ordered even prior to to me evaluating the patient, and um, it's just going to make me pay more attention to the clinical exam findings um, that I would expect from from a heart failure exacerbation. But I think the the importance of this article they have a a lot of things that they attributed a lot of likelihood ratios, sensitivities, specificities to, but it's a it's a very tough diagnosis because we were not present during the event, and mm-hmm. so oftentimes the patient cannot provide us very accurate description of what happened, especially because they syncopized, and sometimes depending on how reliable or present family members were, sometimes you don't you don't get to have answers to these uh, things. So the article did mention that still after all of these symptoms and uh, demographics and uh, descriptions and scoring tools, 13% of the patients across all studies still uh, ultimately received a diagnosis of unexplained syncope. Mm -hmm which just highlights the, the, like I said, the diagnostic difficulty, but also the importance of uh, follow-up care and kind of right. 
following this out and not just having an evaluation at this point in time. Yeah. All right. Well, great. That's a great wrap-up. And so, Cheyenne, thanks again for taking us through all the statistics here and sorting through and telling us what the key features here are. And hope to get you back. Thanks for having me, and I will uh, definitely be back, hopefully soon. All right, good. <laughs> all right, well, finishing things up for this month, we're going to do a quick discussion, maybe a rant, on a topic that I'm sure everybody in emergency medicine faces all the time. It's maybe a source of annoyance for a lot of people as well, and it has to do with the issue of penicillin allergy. And this was brought up, at least brought to my mind, because of an article that was published this past November in JAMA. And it's not really an article. It's more of a like a news segment type of thing. But anyway, the title of this is Overdiagnosis of Penicillin Allergy Leads to Costly Inappropriate Treatment. It was written up by Rita Rubin, again, November, November 13th, 2018 in JAMA. And joining me to discuss this topic is one of my colleagues and our residency director, Dr. Michael Bond. Michael's actually written about this topic of penicillin allergy before and published in 2012 in uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine. Correct. And um, I know this is something that you feel strongly about and get annoyed about, maybe maybe even more than I do. <laughs> so, um, so let me just kind of hand things over to you and, and let you run with it. You can talk about this article. You can talk about your previous article and whether... What's up with this penicillin allergy business? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I think allergies in general just can be a discussion for rants, but penicillin tends to be the one that's notoriously the worst. But I personally just get really annoyed at how I think we personally over-document allergies. If a patient feels anything after taking a pill, it seems like we document it as an allergy, and it has serious ramifications on their care later. Um, it can actually lead to inappropriate care, more costly care. But pen- penicillin is probably the biggest allergy. As you know, penicillin and amoxicillin are probably way overutilized in the pediatric population. A lot of kids will go to the pediatrician with uh, a viral illness, but their ears look a little cloudy, or you can't see their eardrums because they have wax in the canal. Right. And if they cry, their ears are going to turn red. Their TMs are going to turn red. Correct. And then they come home with a double otitis media diagnosis (laughs) and their prescription for amoxicillin, and then they break out in this little rash that only mom can notice, Um, and which is really common when amoxicillin is given to people that have a virus. They get a viral exanthema. But then we label it as a penicillin allergy. Mm-hmm. So then they can't get penicillin for the rest of their life. They can't even tell you what their allergy was. It's a mother allergy, as I refer to them. Their mother told them they had the allergy. Right. Yeah, we've heard that so many times. I'm sure everyone out there has heard that many times as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and then they find that in these patients, if you actually do actually do allergy testing on them, less than 10% actually have a true allergic reaction to penicillin. The one study I last looked at said 4%. This article specifically says around 10%. But regardless, it's incredibly low number, and most of the people don't have it. And then patients will even go on to try to report they have a penicillin allergy because their brother had one, or their sister's uncle has one, or somebody just told them they should never take penicillin. But we wind up treating people very inappropriately with inferior antibiotics, the biggest realm that this affects people is in the surgical arena for prophylaxis. Um, Keflex, cefazolin, is a great prophylactic antibiotic for surgery, yet if you say you're allergic to penicillin, then people are also afraid to give cephalosporins. And the one that actually does have a true cross-reactivity with amoxicillin is cephalexin. Mm-hmm. They, they share the same R-chain side group, 
But even then, the crush reactivity rate's only about 2%. And so if you take the fact that they probably aren't allergic to penicillin, and they're going to have a really low chance of a crush reaction rate, then you probably could give it safely, but everybody's just really fearful of it. Right. Or the other scenario is then they switch over to vancomycin, which I would imagine is more expensive, but more important, we are growing significant resistance to vancomycin because of its overuse as well. Correct. Or they'll get doxy or some other drug that doesn't actually provide the same prophylaxis. So it leads to really major issues. I think what we need to do as a community is really ask them what happened to them. If they can't tell you that they actually had facial edema, angioedema, some sort of breathing issue, or if it was just some GI upset or a rash that wasn't even visible to anybody other than their mother, we probably don't need to list it as an allergy. And we need to be really careful with this with lots of drugs. I can't tell you how many patients I see that are supposedly allergic to Tylenol, but are happy to take Percocet that has Tylenol in it. Right. Or they're allergic to Motrin, but when you ask them what they took at home for their back pain, they took Advil. So ibuprofen should not be listed as an allergy. Right. Or the, the most common may be codeine, which makes everybody nauseous or have vomiting or bad constipation, and then that gets listed as an allergy as well. So all kinds of things that are not true allergies get listed up there. Correct. So I almost think we should have like a separate part of the chart where we maybe say an intolerance. They maybe don't like it or they need some nausea medication with it. But I think we need to be really specific. We're so quick to document allergic reactions. Um, this even happens when patients are on multiple medications and they come in with some reaction. We'll throw all of them out at once. And they should probably have some testing later on to see what they are or are not allergic to. Mm -hmm. So this article basically talks about that all with penicillin, talks about how we wind up leading to more costly care because amoxicillin is very cheap compared to the fluoroquinolones that have their own issues with them. We have so many black box warnings, but they frequently get utilized now, which are more costly and then sometimes don't actually do the appropriate treatment. And then we actually even remove cephalosporins a lot from these patients. Um, so I think we need to really be careful of what allergies we're documenting and make sure they have something that would be truly consistent with an IgE-mediated allergic reaction and not just GI upset. And we should feel free to delete some of these things from patients' charts. Right. Yeah, once they, once they show up there, nobody ever deletes them. No. People are afraid to do that. Okay. No, I'm always amazed, too. Some of our charts will say they're allergic to amoxicillin, ampicillin, penicillin. So it looks like they have 20 allergies, but it's all just penicillin. Right. We could clean that up, too. Just for the allergy list, too, my other biggest pet peeve is when people list iodine as an allergy. As we know, nobody can live without their thyroid. You need Synthroid, so you need iodine for that. We don't have all these people with congenital hypothyroidism making it pass into adulthood. Um, but we should be more specific and say that it actually is either contrast, iodine contrast, or if it's betadine, probadine, iodine that they're allergic to. But we shouldn't be using iodine ever. Otherwise, every time they went to McDonald's, they got French fries with their salt on them, they should be having an anaphylactic reaction and dying. Right. And we're not seeing anybody doing right. that. Or they have some type of sensitivity to seafood, and they extrapolate that and say, well, they can't take iodine. Correct. Yeah. And the ironic thing there is yogurt has more iodine in it than seafood. Really? Yeah. It's, I didn't know that. So if you look at other foods, so there's no cross-reactivity with contrast and seafood. That was based on a 1974 article where the author listed all the different allergies people had. And we definitely know that there are people that are hypersensitive or over-reporters. 
It seems like if you have two allergies, you're also more likely to have a lot more, mm -hmm. and their lists just keep growing. So they tend to be over-reporters, and most of the time it's just because of nausea. But seafood has no cross-reactivity. The true seafood allergy is to proteins, not to iodine. But yes, we should be listing yogurt and asking them specifically about yogurt if we're concerned about iodine-causing reactions. Mm -hmm. I never heard that. But this article does go on to talk about how we should probably be much more aggressive in testing people to see if they truly are penicillin allergic. So these authors recommend a potentially a three-step protocol, and they feel like the emergency department is an ideal setting for this because we deal with anaphylaxis all the time. If they only had, like, nausea or the mother's rash, those symptoms, they actually recommend going straight to an oral challenge. Give them an oral dose of penicillin, watch them for an hour. If they don't have an allergic reaction, they're not allergic to it, remove the allergy, mm -hmm. document that you did a, a test, and you're done. If they did report, like, shortness of breath, any anaphylaxis-type symptoms, then you could do skin testing, and the allergist can be happy to do this. If we did it enough, I'm sure we can stock this in the EDs. It's the same as doing a PPD. All you're doing is intradermal injection and seeing if they have a local wheel and reaction to it. And if they don't have that, then you would progress up to an oral challenge. Sure. But I think we really do need to be a little bit more aggressive as we keep running out of more and more antibiotics and penicillins and cephalosporins actually do really well with a lot of our skin flora, a lot of our oral infections, mm -hmm. um, even a lot of our GI infections. There aren't a lot of other options if you remove those two categories and you wind up inappropriately treating people. Mm -hmm. So we're having really major effects on our care of patients because of these fictitious allergies. Right. So for the uh, for the residents out there that may not be aware of this, what is the true cross-reactivity between the penicillin and the cephalosporins? So true cross-reactivity is about 2.5% um, from all the data we can look at, and that's only for certain first and second generation cephalosporins that share the same R-chain with amoxicillin or ampicillin. The biggest one for that is cephalexin for use in the ED. Mm -hmm. Cephardoxol, which isn't available in the U.S. anymore, had a higher cross-reactivity rate in the past, but it's not available in the U.S. Um, and then no third or fourth generation cephalosporins, or now fifth, have ever reported any cross-reactivity. But if somebody's allergic to something, they tend to over-report or be have lots of allergies, so they're more likely to have their own allergic reaction, not necessarily a cross-reaction. Um, but if I have anybody that says penicillin allergy, I give ceftraxone or cefepime with impunity. I don't even second-guess it anymore. Right. I just give it out. So when probably when we were in medical school, they... The, the common teaching was if somebody's allergic to penicillin, then they should not be taking any cephalosporins. And, and for this argument, we'll just say, let's say somebody has a, a true allergy to penicillin. We were taught that they should not get any cephalosporins. But again, the reality is that the cross-reactivity is enormously low, probably only in the first generation cephalosporins, like 2.5%. But then third, fourth, and fifth generations, there's practically no and I say practically because nothing's ever 100%, but it's never been reported, as you said. Never. Um, uh, that somebody's had a cross-reaction with the, the cephalosporins related to penicillin. And the higher rates in the past was because cephalosporins and penicillins were made on the same molds. So some there was a lot of cross-contamination in the... In the manufacturing well, in the process. Manufacturing process yeah. But it's so much cleaner now yeah. that we don't have those issues. Yeah. So if somebody does have a true allergy to penicillin or you're really worried about it, 
you probably should not worry so much about giving them a cephalosporin. Cephalosporins are, are a lot cheaper and uh, probably more useful than a lot of the the super fancy expensive type of medications that people will often use instead that we're now breeding resistance to. Absolutely. So. The other crush activity people sometimes worry about is penicillin with like the mirapenems, the penems, um, and there is no good evidence to support that either. Okay. Um, so uh, my goal for this would be that everybody should really be trying to really document well what their true allergic reaction is. We need to stop reporting sensitivities like nausea as an allergic reaction. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think those should count at all. Um, we should stop associating this cross-reactivity between seafood and iodine because it doesn't exist. And then the penicillin cephalosporin cross-reactivity rate, I think people can almost ignore that too. Yeah. Um, and then we should really push people to get tested for true penicillin allergies so we can clear up the medical records. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many people think that it's inherited, that if their brother had it, they might get it. Um, or if their uncle had it, and there's no truth to any of that. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks, Michael. Um, it's, uh, nice to get you on board for uh, a rant. I'm sure you have others that uh, would go over really well. So, but this is a, a a really annoying thing that comes up. I'm sure for all of us in emergency medicine, and there is really some nice evidence that you've pointed out to say that we don't need to worry as much about this, and, and also that we can actually do something about it. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, well, we are just about out of time, so it's time to do a quick summary of the three topics that we addressed this month. We started things off by listening to a lecture that Dr. Samantha Wood did on care of the heart transplant patient in the emergency department, and there's some key points that are worth reiterating. First of all, patients with heart transplants end up having de-innervation, and the result is that even though many times these patients can develop acute coronary syndrome, they tend to not have the classic type of chest pain presentation. A small number can re-innervate, maybe about 10 to 30% of patients can re-innervate and I guess have classic symptoms, but the majority will present atypically, oftentimes with symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, but that classic Hollywood type of crushing substernal chest pressure radiating into the arm, it's just not always there. Remember that for bradydysrhythmias, atropine doesn't work. So you might be forced to go with things like isoproteranol or epinephrine or the pacemaker. And for tachydysrhythmias, be very careful about using adenosine. These patients are extremely sensitive to using adenosine. So if you have an SVT, go with maybe a three milligram dose of adenosine first. The baseline EKG of a transplant patient often will show mild sinus tachycardia, you can get alterations of the axis. You can get various degrees of right bundle branch block pattern. And also something interesting, you may have dual P waves due to both atria uh, trying to serve as the, the pacemaker there. So you can get different types of P waves there. In terms of fever, be very careful about assuming fever equals infection. Many times it does, of course. But fever can sometimes be the sole manifestation of rejection. So a cardiac transplant patient that shows up with fever, think about rejection as a possibility as well. In terms of infections, though, these patients develop all the classic type infections. They are immunocompromised, and that means CMV becomes very common. In fact, it's the third most common type of infection, and 
Sam had said that CMV you should consider anytime you have a patient with fever plus itis. So for example, fever plus pneumonitis or fever plus enteritis. That could very well actually be CMV rather than what you would normally expect. Be wary of rejection. Acute rejection is most common in the first two years, but it can occur beyond that. And as we mentioned already, think about rejection when patients show up with fever. Another interesting point she brought up is that the number one killer in patients that are more than five years post-heart transplant is actually cancer. And in fact, skin cancer accounts for 50% of the cancers. So become familiar, at least to some extent, with what skin cancer looks like. It's not typically something we think about in emergency medicine because it, it usually, you know, dermatology, unless it's an acute dermatologic emergency, we don't really learn a lot about it, but take a look at some of the images that you find on the computer, Google images or whatever, to just become a little bit more comfortable and aware of what melanoma and other types of skin cancer look like. Because when these patients show up in the emergency department, you may just make an incidental life-saving finding if you pick up early skin cancer. We talked a little bit about the arrhythmias just for some final management pearls. Bradyarrhythmias are common. Sinus node dysfunction is fairly common. It may actually, bradycardia may actually be a sign of early rejection, so be on the lookout for that. Many of these patients do have mild tachycardia. Remember, atropine doesn't work. Remember, these patients are extremely hypersensitive to adenosine. Next up, we talked about syncope. There's a recent article from the JAMA series that talked about what are the predictors that a patient with syncope has cardiac syncope, especially arrhythmias or acute coronary syndrome. The most common type of syncope that we generally deal with in the emergency department is reflex syncope, also sometimes referred to as vasovagal syncope. But there are some predictors that your patient showing up with syncope actually had a cardiac cause of syncope. The factors that are associated with the high likelihood ratio for ruling in for cardiogenic syncope include shortness of breath prior to the syncope, chest pain prior to the syncope, those are both kind of no-brainers. Visible cyanosis seen by witnesses before the syncope. That's not something that I typically even ask about, but that's worth thinking about. And then on the other hand, you would think that a patient that has palpitations just before the syncope is likely to have cardiogenic cause. And in reality, the studies say that palpitations is very poorly sensitive or specific. It doesn't really increase or decrease the likelihood ratio all that much. There are some negative predictors of cardiogenic syncope. In other words, they're associated with low likelihood ratios. In other words, these factors make cardiogenic syncope much, much, much less likely. If the patient says that they were very worried about something or they had significant mood changes and then syncope, or if the patient said that they were feeling very cold or they had a headache before the syncope, then that also predicts a low likelihood it's cardiogenic. Now, the one caveat, of course, if somebody has a bad headache with syncope, you ought to be thinking about subarachnoid hemorrhage, but not cardiogenic. I would still worry about a subarachnoid hemorrhage, though. If they had severe abdominal pain plus syncope, that's not likely cardiac. On the other hand, there are some dangers there. It could be an ectopic pregnancy rupture. It could be a ruptured AAA. Very often, it's just vasovagal. And also... If the patient had any pallor, that's not helpful either way. And then the one other surprise to me from this article, we've always learned and, and also taught that if a patient has absolutely no prodrome, they're just standing there doing normal daily activities, and then bam, suddenly 
they are unconscious, that that's a good predictor of an arrhythmia. And this article actually says it is not. It doesn't weigh in one direction or another. So that absence of prodrome actually is not all that helpful. And then there's some other lab markers. Elevated BNP or elevated troponin probably is usually not necessary, but if you get it and it's markedly elevated, that's going to point strongly towards a cardiogenic cause. What should you be looking for on the 12-lead ECG? Well, everybody's looking for ischemia and arrhythmias. Don't forget to look at the intervals. If you look at the intervals, you'll pick up WPW because of a short PR. You'll pick up the long QT. Look for hypertrophy. If you have a young person with very large QRS complexes and those dagger-like Q waves, think about hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. If they have epsilon waves in V1 or V2 or V3, with inverted T waves, think about arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. If they have ST elevation in conjunction with an incomplete or a complete right bundle pattern in V1 and V2, and they also have inverted T waves in V1 and V2, then that should make you think about Brugada. And then we talked a little bit about some distinguishing factors between syncope versus seizure that I'm not going to recap right now, but one of the most important things is you've got to talk to the witnesses and ask the, the witnesses, did the patient have any type of prodromal symptoms? Does the patient have a seizure disorder? And very importantly, how long did it take for the patient to wake up and be alert? Uh, again, that refers to the post-ictal period. And then we finished up this month's podcast by talking about penicillin allergy. Michael Bond had a little bit of a rant about penicillin allergy, and it's a rant that I think we can all relate to. And the bottom line is that the vast majority of patients who say that they have a penicillin allergy are not actually penicillin allergic. Now, we don't want to be cavalier about this, but if the patient says that they don't know what the allergy is, in all likelihood... You're probably safe, at the very least, giving them a cephalosporin. First-generation cephalosporins have only about a 2% cross-reactivity with true penicillin allergies. But when you go up to second and definitely third, fourth, and fifth-generation cephalosporins have practically no cross-reactivity with true penicillin allergy. And that can be very useful because there are certainly some conditions where using a cephalosporin is really, really important. Sometimes the only effective or useful drug. So keep those numbers in mind when the patient says that they have a penicillin allergy. And the other thing that I think is probably useful to do is when you see that list of allergies that the patient is reporting, they just kind of accumulate over the years. People start adding more and more allergies to that list. It's probably worth just going in there and specifically saying what the allergic reaction was. Were they really, truly having an allergic reaction to this medicine, or was it just some nausea and vomiting? That's not a true allergy, and it's probably worth putting that in there and, and cleaning up that list of allergies and, and correcting it, making it more accurate for the purposes of future providers. All right, folks, well, that does it for the September issue of EMET Homes EMCast. I hope these topics have been helpful, and I look forward to talking to all of you next month. Bye for now. Hey, thanks for listening to MCAST. And for listening to the end, here's a discount code for you. Use discount code PODCAST for 10% off each year of an annual subscription to emedhome.com.